We are in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. But I just want to say, um, uh, just this time yesterday, my wife and I were in Moscow, Idaho. We got back last night at 8. Um, we're still young enough to be crazy. It was a crazy week. We celebrated our 13th anniversary earlier this week. That was fun. And then uh, we went and uh, got the snot kicked out of us by ministers at a conference, <laughs> which was glorious. I thought that was glorious. But uh, it was just amazing how many you know people, oh, you're the, you're the guy, you're the guy from, from Redeemer. I, I was actually asked by someone if, if anyone had heard from that Christ Covenant church lately. Um, <laughs> I was like, no, I don't know. I don't know what happened to that. <laughs> but but it, it just goes to show, I think, the faithfulness of God to this community because people are so impressed with the transition and, you know, everyone's like, well, how did it go? And, you know, when there's nothing to report that's negative, uh, the, the people are just very grateful and, and, and send their love. Uh, it was the first time since Florida that I'd seen so many other pastors in the CRC uh, and they all wanted to know, and, and they all want, said their, their church has been praying for us. So that was, it was very encouraging. It was very encouraging. Uh, so we are, we, we sometimes, I think, in this Seattle area feel slightly alone, uh, a little bit on an island, but we are not on an island. Many, many people know of us, pray for us, uh, and, w- and wish us well. So that was very encouraging. So to the sermon. I was very nervous last week because I went to check how long the sermon was, and it said an hour and nine minutes. Uh, what I did not realize is that they had kept recording all the way to the end of the service. <laughs> so I was planning to come up here and repent for, for preaching for an hour and nine minutes. But turns out I was fine. It was only 42. I thought that was quite funny. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. I'm going to read uh, this, and then, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Father God, we know that you are a a miraculous and a faithful God, we know that you, you do things in, in great, powerful gestures, that you are in the storm. We know, Lord, also that you are a plodding God, a God who is in the whisper. We know that you are, in, in both ways, working in this world to reveal yourself. You know, Lord, how often our hearts are hardened to that revelation how sometimes we struggle and struggle and struggle to see you in the details of our lives and in the great movements of this world. We pray, Lord God, uh, like, like the disciples, we come to you. Our hearts are hard at times because we do not understand who you, who you are and what you are doing and what you're asking us to do. 
So we come to you this morning knowing that you are the God who answers, the God who reveals, the God who shows up, the God who comes near to us. And we pray, Lord God, that as we open your word, that you would come near us again and give us understanding and give us clarity and give us hope. In the name of your son, amen. So, you know, sometimes with these, these individual stories, it, it, they seem very isolated from one another. But I'm, I'm picking up right where I left off. This, this section here about walking on water, sorry. <clears throat> this section about walking on water, it, it's, it, the story is just continuing. Um, we tied a little bow on last week about the shepherds, but, but this, there, there's no bow actually tied in the text. It, they go from one story to the next story, and, and the reason is, right, I, this is the thing about Bibles, the way that they're made. It, uh, take the verse numbers out, take the little subheading out, and, and take the paragraph breaker out. This is just the, the last story continuing on. And we know that because in verse 45, he's, he's dismissing the, his disciples and, and, and so that he can deal with the crowd. So that there's nothing. He handed out the bread. They, everyone ate. They took up the 12 baskets full. And then, then we start this story right then. There's no break. We also find out in verse 52 that the walking on the water has everything to do with the feeding of the 5,000 because it says their hearts are hardened because of the loaves. So right out of the gate, right, we understand. Mark doesn't want us to be confused about what's going on here. Jesus reveals himself by the feeding of the 5,000, and, and instead of, you know, being thankful, instead of rejoicing, instead of asking questions, the disciples' hearts are hardened. This great miracle, this great revelation has hardened their hearts. And and they have not gotten closer to him. They're there with him, but they've gotten further away. Now, and, 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 you know, I, this part, I might be reading into it, but sometimes as a parent, this happens. Uh, I have a disobedient child, and what I say sometimes is, hey, you know what you need to do is just go in the other room, okay? You're, you are far from me at this moment. You are far from your, this community and this house. You guys are not doing what you're supposed to be doing, so please just take yourselves away. <laughs> and, and this is what Jesus is doing, I, th- I think. He's like, okay, guys. He knows this, their state of their hearts. He's like, all right, all right. Take your 12 baskets, get in the boat, and just head out on the water for a while. You need a little break. You need a little space. And, and he continues to minister to the crowd. And then he goes on a mountain to pray. So, so you know, he, he's not sending them away because he needs some quiet time. He's sending them away because they need some quiet time. <laughs> they need a little time in the corner. A little time to consider the separation. Now, this is not the first story involving the disciples and a boat and a storm and Jesus. And so there, there's a lot of connections here between the previous story about the storm. Remember Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat on the pillow instead of, you know, working the tiller? Remember that story? Everyone's freaking out. This story has a lot to do, you know, there's a lot of details that are connected, but there are a lot of details that are not. Uh, the, you know, this is not just a repeat of that story. He's not with them in the boat. He doesn't want to be with them in the boat. And what, what's amazing is where is this rest that he said they were going to go get? Right? This is, we, we forget very easily because the weeks separate these sermons. But they come back from this long preaching retreat, 
right? They're out preaching, walking all over, hoping that somebody feeds them, hoping somebody gives them a place to stay. They come back, they're all excited. Jesus says, okay, let's go get some rest. Well, what's the rest that he's given them? We really need to consider, did, was he lying when he said, let's go and rest in the wilderness? No. But what they think is rest and what he thinks are, is rest are two very different things. So think, right? Jesus says, hey, come out in the wilderness and, and we'll take a break. You guys look famished. Oh, here's this crowd of 5,000. Here, feed them. It's actually fifteen to 20,000. So, so rest is feeding 20,000 people. Do you know how long it would take 12 guys to hand out food to 20,000 people? Right? Think of, I mean, I, we were just at a restaurant earlier this week. I was shocked by how long it took the waiters to feed the 10 of us sitting in the restaurant. <laughs> we probably won't be going back there. It took forever. But I thought of that. I was like, man, look at it. Right there running all over. Look at, there's different orders to remember. There's different people to remember. And you got to fill the water glasses and you got to, how long do you think it took the disciples to feed 20,000 people? So there they are. Their basket's full. They're like, okay, man, it's nighttime. Can we just lie down where we're, where we're standing here and go to sleep? He's like, hop in that boat. We're going to go to the other side. Uh, I, th- I thought we were, we were going to rest, um, Jesus. No wonder their hearts are hard, right? To a certain extent, you understand. He says, let's go have some rest. And the series of events is anything but restful. Now, for a moment, maybe they're thinking, okay, um, not what I would have thought, not what I would have chosen, but the, the sea looks pretty calm at the moment. So all we got to do is get in the boat, hook up the little sail, because little boats like this, actually, you can ship a mast and put a little sail on there. And if there's some breeze, you, you head on over. Okay, um, you know, we're going to have to sleep in turns because somebody's going to have to navigate the boat. So some of them might be thinking, okay, we'll get a little rest now, I guess. But then what happens when they get out there on the water? <laughs> a headwind. Now, I don't know if you know very much about sailing. Um, but I think we all understand at least this, right? If you're going to sail a boat, you have to have sail coming from behind you, right? In some, some capacity, either from, you know, it can be coming at an angle, but it's at least got to be coming from behind you. That, that way you can tack back and forth. If it's coming directly behind you, that's great. Then you just get in there, hook up that sail, and you're on your way. But rarely does the wind blow in exactly the direction you want to go. So you have to do this difficult thing where you're tacking. You go this way for a while, and you let the wind blow you, and then you turn the sails, and it, and it blows you, and you never go in a straight line. The, the one thing you absolutely can't do is have this, the wind come directly at you because you put the sail on, what's going to happen? You're going to come to a full stop. It's called a headwind. They call it beating up. It's it's this thing that most of us don't know anything about. But back in the age of sail, you miss your turn, which would happen sometimes when you're crossing an ocean. And then you realize at this time of the year, the wind is always going in one direction. And then you'd have to do this extraordinarily difficult thing and beat back against the wind. And you could never beat back against the wind until you got big enough ships to have tons of sails. In the age of Napoleon, you could beat against the wind. On this sea, with this boat, all you're going to be able to do is get out and oar and row and row. So here they are, <laughs> right, after waiting on 20,000 people, getting into a boat thinking, okay, maybe we'll sleep in shifts. But no, here they all are rowing as hard as they can against a headwind. 
Now, I think I've told this story before, but it's been a while. There, there was one unfortunate evening in my youth in which a buddy and I thought, hey, let's go out. We're, we're out on the, they call it the sea, Salish Sea now. Back in the day, we used to call it the Strait of Juan de Fuca. But, you know, that big body of water that leads out to the Pacific Ocean, they call it a sea now. So we were out on a bay on the sea, and my buddy and I thought, you know, it's 2 in the morning. You know what we should do is go fishing. I'm not going to explain exactly how we came to that decision at 2 in the morning. I think <laughs> self-evident to a certain extent. But so there we are, right, two boys from the city on a boat. And, and let me tell you, there was a headwind. And we didn't have a sail. We tried to make one out of like a rope and a coat. That didn't work. And so we're rowing and rowing. And, and, the, and the wind is blowing this boat out to sea. And we didn't tell anyone we were going fishing. So it would have been like one of those stories where people, two guys just disappeared in the middle of the night. And so finally, we got the ingenious idea to tie a rope around ourselves and to jump into the water and to swim, you know, pulling the boat behind us. And that was in, even, that was, it was like every idea got further away from good. <laughs> and th this is how we were saved. We had one re very responsible friend. He, he was like a 40-year-old man in seventh grade. I'm not kidding. He was, he was the fixer, we called him. He would come in and save us from all the horrible things we were doing. And he had seen us. Well, actually, he heard us first. We woke him up, even though we were way out on this bay. And so he sees us, and he goes walking along the shore out to this point with a long rope, and he, he was able to lasso us and pull us in. And that was the only way that we were saved. And, and so I, these men in this boat rowing, they are, they are fishermen, right? This should have been no problem. It was, it's difficult when you don't know what you're doing, but right, if you know what you're doing, it should be easy. But here they are, and they can make no headway. They cannot get going. And, and what I love about this is if you see a picture of where this is happening, right, here's the water, and you're like, oh, that's a sea? Right, Americans, <laughs> this, this is the thing about Americans and English. In America, we think 100 years is a really long time. In England, they think 100 miles is a really long distance. To us, we're like, no, are you kidding me? Right? We can drive from Moscow back to here and be back by 8 o'clock and still have a nice dinner, and here we are at church. In England, they'd be like, that's like traveling halfway across the world. So when I, I think sea, I think, you know, Lake Michigan maybe, right? something like that size. But you see the sea, it's tiny. It's actually really small. And in the background, I love the picture that is in the study Bible, there are mountains. And so I can just imagine Jesus is sitting there praying, and he can see them the whole time. He has not gone far enough away to where he doesn't know what's going on. My guess is he's a lot like our friend who could hear them. And he's like, I'm trying to pray, but I, you know, Peter's just out there on the thing, and he won't just row. He's complaining and complaining and complaining. <laughs> he could see them. So, right? So who told them to go on the water? Who told them? Jesus said, hey, get in the boat and cross. Who's watching them the whole time? Jesus. Jesus is. Now, the word painfully, painfully, in verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. It should not be painfully. Okay? Painfully, I don't, the word is tormented. They were tormented. Their circumstances were tormenting them. And where's Jesus? Right? He's on a hill praying to his father, 
watching. Now, does anyone ever think of Jesus like that in the midst of tormenting circumstances? I love this story because it challenges almost every idea we have about Jesus. He would never let terrible things happen to us, right? He would never let bad things happen to us. He's such a good God. Who told him to go out there? Who's watching them? What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Why is he allowing them to be tormented? Now, when we deal with stories like this, it is so, so so important to make distinctions. Did Job, was Job's heart hard? No. Was he tormented by his circumstances? Uh, yes. His beloved wife said, curse God and die. Just get it over with. Now, are and, and, and in the end, right, from the stormy seas comes a whirlwind, and out of the whirlwind to Job is God speaking to him. So, Job is tormented because God wants to reveal himself to, to Job. God wants to demonstrate to Satan, no, 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 no. he will not curse me. Watch. You, it's not just the houses and the kids and the cattle and all the glorious good stuff. He loves me for my sake. And you can do whatever you want to him, and he will not curse me. Now, that is a very different story <laughs> than men who Jesus is constantly revealing himself to over and over and over and over again, and their hearts are hard. In both cases, though, what do you have? Men being tormented by their circumstances while God watches. So here, here's the temptation, right? Lots of people who have hard hearts think they're Job. <laughs> well, you know, I am just as faithful as all get out. And I'm just surrounded by all these pastors and friends who are idiots like Job's friends. And I mean, you know, I'm a pretty good guy and I'm pretty good and I can justify myself. And, and, and some people in difficult circumstances always think they're Job. But they're not. Their hearts are hard. And lots of sweet, beloved people who are tormented by their circumstances think they're the disciples. Now, how do you tell the difference? Right? How do you tell the difference? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it. But I want to just leave that. How do you tell the difference? When you, right? How often when you see somebody, are we Job's friends? You're like, man, look at the weight. Look at the tormenting circumstances. I don't know what they did, but it must have been bad because God's really angry at them. How often do you make that judgment? Uh, I'll confess, I'll, I'll confess for everyone. I make that judgment all the time, right? You see things going on in people's lives and you're like, man, they better have a come to Jesus moment. Woo! And that's not the problem. They're sufferers. Because this is a world full of sin. This is a world in which Satan hates the things of God, and he will go after us. And in those circumstances, who's on the mountain watching? So God. Right? And then over here, you have hardened sinners. God is revealing himself and revealing himself and showing kindness after kindness after grace after grace, and it just hardens them and hardens them and hardens them and hardens them. And, and, and God has to just keep... keep Ramping it up and ramping it up and ramping it up. We think we can tell the difference, right? 
we think we can just look at people and tell, oh, well, you're a Job or you're a disciple with a hard heart. It's not that easy, though. It's not that easy. Jesus, in this story, is going to give us the cure either way. He's going to give us the cure either way. Right? He knows what's going on. He's working in people's lives. And, and, and what we need to do is, is know what to say to people who are in tormenting circumstances. Right? We're not going to suddenly get out the medical bag and start going to work on them to find out if they're in the book of life. Right? Are you a Job or are you a hardened disciple? It's not our responsibility to make that distinction. So what is? How do you deal with it? Well, generally we stay out of it. Right? <laughs> we see it and we're like, well, man, that looks like a mess. That looks like a mess. So it's a lot easier to stand way over here and just hope that the lightning doesn't also strike us. <laughs> right? Good hundred feet should do it. They're tormented. They're tormented. And so what do people do? In, in stories like this, right, I could not go on CNN and proclaim this as the truth of God. What kind of God are you preaching who's going to send people into these tormenting circumstances while he sits on a mountain watching? What is he doing? Why are you serving him? Why are you declaring these things to people? You're supposed to just make people feel better. Give them ice cream and stuff. Tell them it's going to be okay. Now, for years, given the what seems to be extraordinarily callous, callous approach of Jesus in this story, I've always understood this verse, verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. <laughs> Look at that. He's just going to walk on by. <laughs> That's what I've always thought it meant. He's like, look at those guys. Man, that looks rough. You know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk over there. I'll catch them on the other side. Right? Doesn't, isn't that how it sounds? How many of you guys actually thought that's what it meant? He's going to just walk by them? Well, I mean, Jesus, come on. At least walk far enough away from them so they don't see you. Right? That's what I would do. I'd just be like... But, I, I you know... Headwinds don't matter to me. I'm gonna, I've had a nice break up here on the mountain. I'm just going to walk right on by their boat. Maybe I'll say hi, maybe I won't. So he walks out there. <laughs> he doesn't call out, Hey, guys, I'm on my way. He just walks out there. They're exhausted. They're tormented. And what happens? The, right, the only reasonable and natural thing, you see something walking on the water and, and you think it's a specter. You think it's a ghost. You think it's a ghoul. You think it's a demon. Something, right? What can walk across the water? Because I think most of us, right, I, I, we can understand them. My propensity, when I saw, if I saw something like this, would to automatically assume it was wicked and evil for some reason. And I don't even really know why. But if I saw a man walking on water, I would assume not that he came from God. And I, why? Why? 
I don't know about you, but that's how I feel. I feel like I would just, oh, I, I, of course, it's going to be evil. It's not going to be God coming to help me. What do they think? They think it's a ghoul. They think it's a specter. And now, now at this point, things get really interesting. <laughs> it's only been moderately interesting up till now. Now it gets really interesting. Because they scream out in terror. They scream out in terror. Job 9.8, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? This is a verse in Job. Who else walks on the water? Is Job saying. This is what the book of Job is all about. Who's bigger than your circumstances? Who's bigger than nature? Is God. And he is mysterious and profound. And he alone tramples on the waves. <laughs> right? But in the midst of these terrifying circumstances, somebody's not like, oh yeah, I'm going to quote Job to calm us all down. Because that thing on the water must be God. Because that's what it says in Job. Right? That's not what we do. How many of us in terrifying circumstances right, automatically go to the Bible and think, oh yeah, the, oh, oh yeah, okay. I'm just going to, I remember that section Isaiah. Right? This is, right? We freak out. We don't know ourselves. We think we're people of the word. We think we have all this scripture memorized. We think we know these stories. And what we do is we get out on the boat in the middle of tormenting circumstances. And when God walks out there to us, we think it's a demon. We think it's a specter. It's important to understand that the idea that Jesus is doing here, when he says pass by them, he does not mean walk past them and leave them there. He knows what they need. In this moment of, of torment, this moment of struggle, this moment of tiredness, what they need is a manifestation of God. They need to see him. And passing by is a phrase from the Old Testament when God would do something called a theophany. God would show himself to the people of God. He would pass by them. Moses wants nothing more than to see God. He wants to see him so, so desperately. And this is what God says in Exodus chapter 33, 15 through 22. And God said to him, if your presence, or Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. This is Moses talking to God. If you're not going to go with us, don't take us from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not your, is it not your going with us? Is it not your presence with us that makes us distinct? I and your people. From every other people on the face of the earth, this is what makes us distinct. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, pass by you. And those of you who don't know, he takes Moses and he puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he walks by. It's all Moses wants is to see him. And, and God says, okay, you have found favor in my sight, and you will behold me. So Jesus on the mountain looks down, and he sees them tormented, and he says, you know, you know what they need? is to know that I am with them. They need to know who I am. They're, they don't understand. He's a compassionate God. He gets that their hearts are hardened, and so he wants them to, to really to see now. Okay, they didn't get the lows. They didn't get it. 
And so what I'm going to go down now is I'm going to pass by them on the water and show them my glory. This also occurs to Elijah, 1 Kings 19.11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And it goes on from there because he's in the whisper. But he's passing before the eyes of Elijah. Jesus is showing himself not only to be the greater prophet, but he is passing before the disciples, which put the disciples on the same footing as Moses and Elijah. Well, who does that make him? Who does that make them? Him. If they are the favorite of the Lord, if they are like Elijah and Moses, and the glory of the Lord is passing before them, who does that make Jesus? Now, what is fascinating about this is it's, it's, a, it's actually a complicated reverse theophany. Generally, in the Old Testament, you have this transcendent God who does not have a body like us, who is a spirit, who is eminent, who is eternal. And what he has to do is show himself as a burning bush, because that you can look upon and it won't make your head explode. It's complicated what a burning bush represents, a fire consuming a a plant, well, a fire actually on a plant that doesn't consume it, because it doesn't need the fuel of the plant for the fire to burn. You're like... Huh. God's like a burning bush. Okay. Read for us this morning. He goes before them and he's a cloud, a pillar by day, by night, it's fire. Okay, well, that's a little, that's intense. But the transcendent God shows himself as something that, that they can wrap their heads around. What you have, right? Jesus is a guy from Nazareth. I can wrap my head around that. I know where Nazareth is and I know what a guy is. But what he's doing now is the reverse. He's not veiling himself so that they can look upon him. He's unveiling himself so they can look upon him. They're terrified. They smother their mouth, holding back the scream. What is this thing on the water? Job 38.1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, goes on in verse 8 through 11. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling bend, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come, and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. Who's the one who set the limits of the waves? Who's the one who designed it? Natural law? Right? Does water flow downhill because there's these written laws by somebody? Something? Just a mechanism. Out of the world when the Lord speaks, and he says, I made the water. I made it. I set its limits. Who are you, O man? And, and, and here the disciples are, and they do not get it. They do not get it. And so he speaks. And this is what God does. He shows himself. And who of us understand him? When he shows himself in history, when he shows himself through his providence, when he shows himself in this world, how many of us are like, oh, that is the Lord God? Behold. No, we're terrified. We're terrified. So not only are they tormented, now they're terrified. 
Right? Like, you know, they, look at them. They're tormented down there, and I'm going to drive their torment away by filling them with fear. <laughs> what? What? I, I thought you took torment away by taking torment away, not, not replacing with something worse. It's like that guy floating in the water, praying to God, please, God, save me from drowning. And he's swallowed by a fish. This is God. This is God. He drives out their torment with terror. And so he says, okay, now the revelation, this, this, right? I do the bread thing. They don't get it. I'm greater than Moses. I'm greater than Moses. I'm greater than Joshua. I am the God who spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. I, look at me. Who set the boundaries of this thing? I can walk on this like it's cement, baby. I made this stuff. They're terrified. So he says, okay, now I'll talk to them. That'll calm them down, right? <laughs> and what does he say? I am. Do not be afraid. Oh, it's the I am. Well, who's the I am? Well, it's the same God who spoke out of the bush. Moses said, what should I tell Right? I'm going to go and talk to Egypt. I'm going to go talk to Israel, to God. I'll do it, I guess. I guess. That is Moses' response. But who should I tell him is calling? Who's calling? And God says, I am who I am. And then what you have is the name of God that no person is allowed to say. At this point, Jews aren't allowed to say this. You're not allowed to say the name of God. It's forbidden. So this specter that they think is a demon reveals himself to be who then? The God of the Israelites. I am is speaking to them out of the whirlwind. There's a storm blowing in their face, and there's this thing on the water, and they don't know what it is, and when it speaks, it says, I am. Do not be afraid. And to Joshua, and to Moses, and to David, and to thousands and thousands of Christians who had lived before this time, he always says, he always puts it, these two things together. I am, do not be afraid. Well, I am what? I am. I'm here. I am the God of this world. I exist, so don't be afraid. Right? He doesn't, I am what? I am. That's what you just need to accept. I exist. So don't be afraid. Because I exist, who am I for? You or someone else? Because I exist, is there anything else that you should fear? Well, how, does, how, how are they dealing with this? Okay, it actually was less scary when we thought it was a demon. Now, now the God that made the heavens and the earth is walking around on the water. And then he gets in the boat. And it's Jesus. At this point, they had no idea. That's why they're astounded. This thing, this terrible, horrible, terrifying thing on the water speaks to them out of the whirlwind. And before they can even process the fact that it's the living God, he gets in the boat and it's Jesus, a guy from Nazareth. Uh, Astounded doesn't even begin to describe how they're feeling at this moment. And why? 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 Right? Because the day before, they were promised rest. Come, we will rest. And instead, they got to listen to Jesus preach all day. Then they got to feed these people all evening. And now we got to row on this boat. 
And, I, and I'm not happy about it. I don't like this guy. And then the guy turns out he's God. <laughs> what? what? What do you say to these guys at this point? They're not ready for this. They, they don't want. They are not open for this. Whatever this is, which they can't even understand, they're not down with it. And, and because Mark is a genius, and because Mark knows his Bible, we, we had read for us today from Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. This is, what, this is what the Lord said. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am your Lord, the healer. Are they healed at this moment? Are the disciples healed? They don't recognize him. They're hard they're not pursuing him. So they get to the other side. And this is what Mark tells us. When they had crossed over, they came to, to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And ran, ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages and cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. They recognize him. Do the disciples? Right? Now, in this story, nobody is begging Jesus to preach. So they recognize that he has power. They recognize he's sent by God. They recognize that he can say, demons go and they go. Fever go and it goes. So they recognize that he's bringing salvation, but it's not complete because they're just worried about their circumstances. But of course they are because they live in a fallen world that's full of brokenness and sickness and hurt. And here are the disciples who watch him multiply bread out of his bare hands. And those who should know, who, ha- who have more understanding, more insight, more knowledge, are further from him than the people who just know he, just, just touch him. Just touch him. It's his person. See, in the first miracle, Jesus is in the boat and he says to the storm, be quiet, and it's quiet. In this one, his presence, it's him. He comes out on the water to his children. This crowd, right? They don't, they don't comprehend the deeper things of God. Their faith is simple. Him. Get near him and touch him and you're going to be okay. And they run. They run here and they run there and they pursue him and there's immediacy and urgency in what they're doing. And those who are not hearing his word and not hearing his deep revelations are closer to him than the disciples. Right? He sends them on the waves and they're tormented by their circumstances. These people over here have cripples and lepers and people who can't come in, right? Sufferers on both sides. He's desperately pursuing these guys and he can't get anywhere with them. All he's got to do is show up and everybody over here comes running to him. Two kinds of sufferers. What's the answer? What's the thing they need? Jesus. It does not matter if you get a microscope out and you're trying to figure out why this person is suffering, it doesn't matter. 
right? You want to know, is this, well, I mean, I really need to know, right? It's, it's not okay that I don't know. Is this Job? Are you Job? Are you just hardened? Right? How many of us are Job's friends? We're constantly Job's friends. What they need to do is Jesus, 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 Jesus. There's a lot of headwind. Jesus, you're sick. Jesus, you're, you're tormented in, in your body because you can't, your legs don't work and your eyes don't work. Jesus, you're terrified because there, you, God shows up and you think it's a demon. Jesus, everybody who is suffering needs the same thing. Jesus, he is the Lord, the healer. And so it's those who recognize him run to him. Those who don't, he runs after them. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we serve. The harder your heart is, the more work he's got to do. He keeps ratcheting it up. He'll keep yelling louder and louder until you get who he is. When you get who he is, he's there. Touch him and you're better. This is what, in the very middle of this book... Right? What is it? it? We're going to get into the Passion Week. It's coming. But is that what this is? This is just the everyday lives of these people. God says, get up, get in the boat, and cross the lake. Go about your job. These people over here are just going about their business in the marketplace. And all around them, what do you have? In every category, in every category, sufferers. People who are tormented, people who are terrified, people who are broken. And the answer is Jesus. Are we running to get people to come? (laughs) Are we just in the headwind, just as frustrated as all get out, and Jesus shows himself to us, right, or tries to show himself to us, and we're not listening to that, right? The last thing I need right now is is a Bible study. What I need is 10 grand, <laughs> right? What I need is new tires on the car. What I need is a better paying job. What I need is a bigger house. What I need is more drugs. What I need is surgery. What I need, what I need, what I need. And all along, the rest that is offered to them is with them. And this is where, this is how I'm going to end it. Everybody is confused about what the rest is, right? Sabbath rest, what is it? Well, uh, we don't work. We get to sleep in, some of us. Is that right? Go home, put your feet up, get a drink with a cocktail, right? Get one of those little umbrellas, have some rest. He says, Come and, and rest. And all along, what is the rest? Him. It's Him. On this day of the week, this is the, the day especially set aside for you to find rest. And the rest, right? How many of you guys ever have been like, You know, I am too tired to go to church? What I, you know, you know what I really need, because I'm tired, is to sleep until like 11.30. And then drink like three gallons of coffee, right? And watch baseball. And then I'm going to be feeling great. And then Monday comes and do you, right? Do you feel better? I'm sorry, you can watch baseball on Sunday. That's not what I was, yeah, okay. <laughs> we don't understand what the rest is. We don't, and we're being pursued. How many of you guys actually feel like you're being pursued like these disciples in the boat? I'm not going to get into hardness of heart or any of that right now. I'm not. 
Do you feel like you're being chased down and hunted like this? That you're going from torment to terror to astonishment? If you're that person, it's Jesus. Right? Now, if you, if you just find yourself, you, you hear this name, you don't really understand who Jesus is, you don't really understand what the Gospels are, you don't really understand the Word of God, right? You're, you're like these people on the shore, he just shows up. Are you running to him? Are you bringing everyone that you know who needs him to him? Are, are you pursuing him to just touch him? In both of these, these categories, these people, right? You ha- this is what you have. People running away, being pursued. People running towards him and being healed. Whatever is going on, whether you're Job or your heart is hard, you need Jesus. And when you recognize him, don't run from him, run towards him. Run towards him. And then, go tell everybody you know. Everybody you know. Right? I, I, how many of you guys know somebody and they're looking for some advice, and I've been in this position, I was in this position even recently, and what they want to know is how to make a good financial decision, and really what I want to tell them is they need Jesus. You know, I, I don't really know very much about markets, I could give you some advice. Really, you just need to read this Bible. Come to church. We want the healing to come in, in any way possible, right? Any other way, some way we can see, some way that makes sense, some way that we can do the math and it adds up. But Jesus is the answer. Jesus is what we need. Jesus is what this world needs. And if we don't need him, how are we going to convince the world they need him? Right? And, and the disciples know more than anybody. And it doesn't help them. It doesn't help them when they're tormented. It doesn't help them when they're terrified. Faith like a child. Just reach it, right? They've, you, you mean to tell me a woman with a hemorrhage reach out and touch this guy and she was, she was better? And that was him? You just have to get that close to him? It's not about what I know. It's not about the sacrificial system. It's not about this or about that. All I got to do is get there and touch him. Put my hand on him? That, that's it? it? Yeah, that's it. That is all. That's the gospel. Right? Everything that stood between you and him, you and the Father, you and the Spirit, you and eternal life, you and heaven, everything that stood between you and joy and infinite life, everything, it, it's all gone. It's just him now. All the types, all the shadows, it's all pushed away. Walk up and touch him. Cry out to him. Be like these people. When he comes to the shore, because Jesus is here, run to him. Cry out to him. Get in his way. Put your hands on him. Get near him. Him. That's what's going to make you better. That's what's going to heal you. Father, we pray, Lord, as we hear this word from Mark this morning, that our hearts would not be hardened, that we would not be tormented by our circumstances any longer, that we would not fear, that we would not walk in confusion, that we would not walk in darkness, that we would not hide, that we would not look for something else to give us rest and peace and hope. We pray, God, you are here. You have come. You did not stay on the mountain, but you came, and, and you came to heal us. And we pray, God, that you would give us the simple faith, this childlike faith, to draw near to you and and, in drawing near to you 
knowing that you yourself are what makes us better. You yourself are what gives us life. You yourself are what gives us rest and healing and hope. And amen.